Hi everyone, and welcome to episode two of Performance Talks. Uh, my name is Simon Taylor, and I'm here with my co-host Steve Nightingale. In today's episode, we're going to be chatting to our good friend Stephen Breisner. Stephen is an amazing coach, and uh, one of the smartest guys I know, honestly. Um, he's currently with the English Institute of Sport and Loughborough University in the UK. We've got a great episode where we're going to talk to him about the first things that he does when he gets to work with a new athlete, his approach to the needs analysis, and understanding a sport that he's never worked with before. Um, we also recorded this at the very beginning of the pandemic, and so we touch on the ways that COVID and the restrictions have changed the way he had to coach, um, and the impact that that's having on the industry as a whole. Hope you enjoy the episode and let's get to the conversation. Thanks, Stephen Simon. Uh, so yeah, uh, I currently work for EIS as part of the mental support plan for, uh, for Elise Christie and the short track speed skating, uh, as well as working for Loughborough University uh, with their women's rugby program and then uh, across TAS which is uh, almost like scholarship support to student athletes uh, but starting at the top uh, I started university when I was uh, 20 uh, I was an ice hockey player and went to university in America to try and uh, try and uh, become an ice hockey player and uh, didn't end up making the team so uh, carried on with university and decided to stop playing because of the background I'd already liked the gym been in the gym a lot so had an interest in it I looked at starting to do placements and internships while I was still at university uh, when I finished in 2012 got an internship at Bolton Wanderers uh, was there for a few months and then uh, got an internship with EIS so worked uh, multi-sport uh, assisting the S&C coach they had there at Loughborough uh, so I was doing that for a few months, probably about six, seven months in total, and then started getting contracted work for the IS to work specifically with Paris women, women's cricket and women's football, and did that for another kind of eight, nine months uh, before getting a job with British Triathlon. Uh, so spent about four, just over four years with British Triathlon working across both their Olympic and Paralympic programmes. Uh, and then uh, moved over to China after that to work with you guys and was with you for about six months uh, and left China, came back to the UK and the EIS and picked up a role with a, with a question that developed into a role with a question and speed skating. And then uh, over the past couple of months transitioned from, from a question with the EIS over to Loughborough University in the women's rugby and task programmes. Nice. So you've covered quite a few sports in your time and obviously worked with a number of different teams. Have you had any one that you would consider to be like a key mentor in your development there? Yeah, there's quite a few. So when I first uh, left university and uh, uh, after I joined the EIS, or one of the reasons I joined the EIS was because uh, of a guy called Jared Deacon, who's now up with Scottish Rugby. So he was really the first first person uh, within my professional career that who really helped progress and guide me and uh, he's a man so <clears throat> everything around developing an S&C coach is really good with uh, and then sort of moving through my career uh, into triathlon uh, 
I work uh, closely with essentially as the lead coach was my uh, was Ian Piper. So I worked closely with him for four, four years. And again, he incredible SNC coach, really nice guy and really helped me develop uh, sort of all the skills, all the skills needed to be an SNC coach in the elite environment. And also uh, the, probably the third person is throughout all of that time, uh, a woman called Michelle Pearson, who's now the national leader of the EIS. Um, she's kind of, she was based out of Loughborough when I first started there and uh, had a few roles, few roles with the EIS between then, but has always uh, guided me, whether it's a technical lead or line manager uh, around my development and things like that. So those, those are probably the three people that have, uh, have helped me the most, but also that I've uh, been able to learn the most out of. Nice, man. Yeah, I think it's so important to uh, give some sort of shout outs. Lots of people, you know, in this industry help you along the way. So it's good to be able to give shout outs to those. Uh, okay, jumping in, let's go to topic one. So we've all, uh, you know, had jobs around the globe in different teams and whatever. I want us to kind of have a bit of a discussion about how you go about uh, when you join a team, what's kind of the first things you do to get coaches on side, get athletes on side. Um, so Steve, I guess we'll start with you, you know, probably try and pick up maybe a couple of examples of what do you do in the first couple of weeks to try and get those athletes in board of what you're doing? Uh, so it almost starts before, before getting in, uh, getting in with the team or starting the job is just trying to find out as much information about about the sport and the people within it as possible so uh, <clears throat> it's kind of it's quite easy to learn about the sport because no matter what sport is there's a ton of research a ton of literature out there a lot of people working uh, within that sport that you can kind of draw on to get get good information about the sport itself uh, but then uh, one of the things to try and do is reach out to as many people as possible either who have who have worked in that direct team that that I'm going into or work with the same uh, uh, individuals or previously worked with them to get an idea of what the climate's like within the sport and the, what the athletes are like, what the coaches are like, uh, just everything around to kind of best prepare going into it. And then uh, I suppose sort of first day terms, the key key thing for me would be around trust and I know there's quite a few models around it uh, but for me the the two primary things are around uh, knowledge and relationships so the people I'm working with are able to trust my knowledge and expertise but then also been able to build build key relationships within the sport quite quickly um, I suppose a few of the techniques that I've tried to use to do that is not changing too much initially but but changing enough. So what I mean by that is, uh, is um, I don't want to go in and uh, change everything. So it kind of gives a sense that potentially what the athlete was doing previously was wrong because that's never the case. And a lot of the time jumping into a role, what they're doing was already a really, really good standard. But then also if I go in and don't make too many changes, uh, it might show, uh, might show a lack of confidence or or a lack of knowledge in certain areas and uh, people of different styles are doing things so uh, perhaps something's done that was uh, different to the style that I like to work in um 
And then I suppose that the other key things relate to that relationship piece and uh, just getting to know each individual, not just from a sporting perspective, but from a personal perspective. Um, so taking an interest in where they are as a person, actually genuinely listening to what they're saying um, and uh, things like that. And I know, Simon, from my experience going into China with you, as kind of one of the key things that you like to do around relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, say what you will about China and their sports um, organization. One thing that I definitely learned from my time there is that relationships are king. Um, like you said, if you do some research on the sport beforehand, when you have a first meeting with an athlete or a coach, you're able to speak their language. You're able to use the terminology from the sport and get buy-in that you actually understand what they need and are able to deliver it. And then, as you mentioned there, another key one is building those personal relationships. Um, what's the uh, what's the famous quote? No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that's, um, that's a really apt um, one in terms of getting buy-in for what you want to do. No one's going to trust you until you show you actually have their best interests at heart. And um, and I also agree with you on what you were saying about not wanting to come in and um, necessarily change things too much. I've always taken the approach of evolution, not revolution. Um, I'm sounding a bit buzzwordy here, but uh, um, I think they're really useful phrases to bear in mind. Like um, if you're working with a team, you don't want them to suddenly, you know, you don't want to change things too much because you're going to be basically criticizing everything that's got them to the point where they're at. What you want to do is always try and uh, promote what you're bringing to the team as a positive. So coming in and saying, oh, um, what you're doing is great, but if we add this in or we change this a little bit, it will give you X or it will benefit you in this way. Um, Rather than coming in and criticizing what they're doing you're kind of trying to add on to it uh it's definitely the way i prefer to prefer to go yeah do you know i think you're so right with that about not changing things too much i think it's one of the mistakes that i see with a lot of young coaches coming through they go into a team and it's like they're acting like these athletes have never had another snc coach it's like if you're you know working at a fairly high level we've all worked with olympic teams we've worked with professional teams those athletes have had not one but multiple coaches and you know generally they've had really great coaches so to come in and just be like everything you're doing is wrong and we need to do it my way just one it shows a complete lack of respect for what's happened before that um and two yeah like you say you know you you just instinct that uh, sort of uh, instantly putting up some barriers rather than than building those relationships. I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the guys who plays for Kunlun, he was injured. He went um, back to Canada to get some treatment, and he said, "Oh, I'll put you in touch with uh, with the SNC and the rehab team over there." So I'm like, "Okay, cool, great." So get him to send me an email. Mike Boyle drops me an email. I'm like okay you're in pretty good hands you know the guys i'm working with have worked with matt nickel with with mike boyle it's like 
I'm not going to turn around and be like, hey, everything you've always been told is wrong and I need to change everything. Um, because you're just, to be honest, making yourself kind of sound a little bit silly. You're setting yourself up for a fall a little bit. So um, another thing I guess I was going to say, like I played hockey growing up. I've gone into hockey teams and I'm able to speak that language. Um, how, you know, either of you feel free to jump in. How have you found it uh, going into sports where you haven't necessarily been, uh, you know, where you don't understand that culture of the sport, you don't speak that language? Um, how have you sort of found that a little bit? It's a good question. I think it can be tough, but the way I sort of approach it is go down to that relationship thing and is around honesty in terms of uh, I'd admit where like my terminology or my understanding of certain elements of the sport isn't that great um, uh, and then sort of use that to uh, kind of ask ask around it so trying to help help improve that relationship I think I suppose the times with me personally where in instances where it's fa fallen down is like the sport coach and the athletes are always going to know a lot more about the sport, a lot more about the sport than I will. Um, uh, so trying to listen and uh, taking taking as much from them as as possible. Um, uh, but yeah, just being kind of honest and upfront in that. And to be fair, most coaches and athletes realise that going into a new sport, particularly if it's a niche sport, um, that they don't. Uh, it's not sort of an expectation to know everything about that sport straight off the bat. Yeah, I think that's another really good point there. Um, I think it's really important for coaches to have the confidence to know what they don't know. And um, that's part of working in a multidisciplinary team. You're there to bring your experience and your skill set, but you need to also rely on the other people. And I think building a really good relationship shows um, or rather it's really important to show a trust in those other people to show a trust in their skills in their experience and to show that you want to draw on their experience again that's something that I I would always try and do is make sure that you know one of my starting points is going to the technical coaches the head coach um, and making sure that they understand that I'm there to support them and I'm not trying to undermine them or um, change anything. I'm trying to make them and their program better because um, there is always that conflict and particularly um, sort of old school head coaches who have traditionally run everything when uh, new experience, expertise, people who are a bit more tech savvy or perhaps data um, savvy come in, they sometimes can feel a little bit apprehensive or undermined. So I think it's really important to make sure that you respect them and their experience and bring them on board. Um, and the other thing that I was thinking there as you were talking, Stephen, was the, the idea of the, the culture of the team. Um, regardless of whether you know the sport or not, every like every sport has its own culture, every team has its own culture. Um, so you could go from one hockey team to another hockey team and the team culture might be different. So even though you speak the, you've got the vocab, you speak the language of the players, their team culture might be different. So you have to really try and get to understand 
um, that a little bit more before you really start trying to, to tackle the changes because you don't know how they'll respond to it. No, for sure. And I think it comes down to that relationship. And when we talk about the like the soft skills and uh, the non-discipline specific skills of uh, strength conditioning, your ability to be able to understand people and read people so that you know that this coach is most receptive if you go and grab a coffee with him while another coach might be more receptive if you go to him go to them with numbers yeah definitely that i think um like certainly in uh like in a hockey team where i am we have you know a hierarchy of coaches from head coach down now i certainly know there's going to be things I want to take to the head coach, but there's a lot of times he has so many external pressures coming in on him from GMs and from owners that I've often had a lot more success grabbing a beer with an assistant coach one night because I know that that assistant is going to be able um, to kind of drip feed some ideas in uh, to that head coach probably a lot more successfully than I am. So yeah, um, sometimes it's about picking your battles, I think. Um, but other times it's about deciding who the best person is to talk to. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great point. I've done that a lot in the past as well, is find the person who has the influence, um, not necessarily the decision maker, but someone who can actually influence the change and also be quite happy that you don't have to get the credit like yourself. Um, like for example, when I was working with the Chinese figure skating team, I would work a lot through the team manager and one of the assistant coaches. Now in part that was because the head coach didn't speak English. Um, and so it was much easier for me to communicate with those guys, but it was also because I had a very good relationship with each of them. And so for certain things, I could speak to the team manager for other things. I could speak to the assistant coach and I knew that that would get filtered up. And so I'm not necessarily getting the credit for that, but those, some of those changes came in down the, uh, down the pipe. Yeah, for sure. Definitely agree with that. Um, okay, let's move on. Um, so one of the really, really cool projects, Steve, you got involved in working um, with us uh, when we were all with Team China was very much uh, kind of a very detailed needs analysis of sports. Now, we've kind of touched on this a little bit because, you know, we've all gone into sports that we aren't necessarily familiar with at times um i went into speed skating not only not knowing anything about speed skating but having come from a hockey background and there's already a lot of conflict between those two sports um so steve why don't you talk a little bit about uh the kind of approach that you take when you're looking at a needs analysis starting with a new sport thanks steve yeah and Everything that, or the majority of what I'll talk about is kind of stolen and taken from different places. Uh, so it's it's nothing new. It's just kind of my thought process around around how to uh, put together a needs analysis. Um, but the sort of first fundamental part is knowing where you need to go. Uh, 
so putting together a needs analysis you need in order to know uh, how to get there you need to know where you're going first so that kind of works into a know some people call it a what it takes to win uh, model or uh, a performance model deterministic model so what um, what's fundamental or what what's needed to be able to win or to be able to medal or reach a final and then almost almost working working backwards from that so breaking it down layer by layer so using a crude example of say like diving <clears throat> dive into score based sport you can work out on past events roughly how many points it would take to win at an olympic games medal at an olympic games how do you generate those points from each of your dives at varying difficulties and then start breaking the dives down individually and uh and then you start going uh going sort of deeper and deeper down the down the rabbit hole and it's uh it's quite an interesting process and for some sports it's already done like if you walked into the majority of um british olympic sports they'd have they'd have a what it takes to win model they'd have uh a performance model they would it for the most part it'll be it'll be broken down uh into various aspects and then almost all the way down to the lowest level of what we can uh, what can influence us, uh, performance coaches and SNC coaches, uh, and I suppose with a caveat to that is there. There's a lot of red herrings along the way in terms of there's things that uh, people think thinks important, but might not necessarily be that important to uh, to performance. Uh, so I, su- I suppose it is it is a monster of a project if it's done uh, if it's done well i know deterministic modeling's kind of been uh, batted bat- batted around as a term but the premise of deterministic modeling is that it's from mathematics and you know every single variable that gets inputted and from that you can uh, you can generate an outcome or you can uh, predict the outcome but within sport even uh, linear sort of closed sports you still don't know all of the variables so you're trying to trying to understand as many variables as you can in order to make the best best decision yeah it's uh it's funny you know you and i spent a lot of time many many hours looking at these models um and i think those kind of deterministic models lend themselves better to certain sports than others uh kind of as you alluded to Closed sports are kind of easier to work out. Uh, I have been going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole um, with hockey and about, you know, again, kind of what it takes to win. And I started on this huge project of modeling three or four years worth of data of NHL and how do you win a Stanley Cup? Well, you need to get to the playoffs. Okay, how many, how do you get to the playoffs? Well, you need this many points. Okay, how do you get that many points? and often you end up in dead ends for sure. Uh, I think it's fair to say my approach is probably a lot more simple. Um, don't, <laughs> maybe that speaks to the difference between you and I as coaches, Steve, I'm not sure. But I guess for me, I kind of break it down into three very basic um, sections. So I kind of look at the physiological demands of the sport and you know you can draw this data from everywhere right there's so much about researching into journals into books etc 
um, if you're struggling trying to pull data from other sports and apply it, etc. But yeah, start with the physiological. It's testable, it's trainable, and you know, like you said, you can uh, have impact over each one of those. Um, breaking that down, I then move on to biomechanical models. So again, like with hockey, for example, looking at how we generate power, and there's so much out there um, about stride mechanics, positioning on, on the blades. Um, you can just end up doing this for, for hours and days and, and, and lose weeks doing it. Um, and then finally, I suppose I start to have a look at, you know, longitudinal injury analyses of sports. And, you know, it's a bit of a cliched phrase, but uh, the best ability is availability, right? Trying to get your best players. And, and I actually had a conversation with uh, an NHL coach the other day, and we were talking a lot about, you know, modeling and how we can win games. And he basically just said, listen, Steve, when our best players play, we win. So, you know, if you can limit those um, risk of injuries, if you can keep everybody healthy as much as possible, you stand much, uh, you know, a much greater chance of winning. No, and I, and I like that approach a lot. And uh, I suppose just playing devil's advocate a little bit is almost uh, the things you spoke about and working on 100% right in terms of performance. But how do you know that if someone's more powerful and therefore able to skate faster, if they're able to skate faster, how does that directly help you win games? Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and, and the answer, to be honest, is I don't. You know, I've been uh, working on a project using Catapult this season with, uh, with the team. And it's sending me off on, on all kinds of avenues and, and rabbit warrens. But you're absolutely right. Ultimately, so many times I take a kind of, you know, I start off with a common sense approach. And when I actually break it down, what I think is happening from 25 years experience of playing and watching hockey isn't actually leading to being successful. So it's definitely uh, a, a difficult task to get right for sure. Sai, what do you think about it? Yeah, I agree with, um, with both of you. Um, really, there's, you know, you can take a very, very simple approach and you can, you know, you can pick off all the low hanging fruit and go for some of the obvious tweaks and changes. Um, and as you mentioned, Steve, in a sport like hockey, um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work in rugby. You could apply it to soccer or football as well. Um, any kind of big open team sports like that, the, the greatest thing you can do is have your players available. Um, to be honest, that, that goes across other sports as well, even something like figure skating. For me, my primary goal was always to have the athletes available to, kit, to fulfill the full training plan that the head coach has laid out. If they're able to complete that full training plan, they're probably going to be more successful. Um, when you do dive more bit more deeply into a sport obviously you can go um, pretty in depth and get the get into that deterministic modeling I find sometimes that could either help you before you start with a sport or once you've um, 
actually got started with a with a team with a sport that might be my kind of my next year as I'm reevaluating the the needs of the team I I want to you know I picked off all the simple things the the obvious ones that I felt needed to change and then we're going more in depth and I think actually that's something that um is really valuable for coaches to do is to reevaluate their own needs analysis uh you mentioned obviously that you've been working in hockey for a long time you've both played hockey trained hockey players for most of your life um how much of a factor do you feel your kind of innate knowledge of hockey influencing what you do versus being able to actually analyze it with sort of either data that you've gathered or with research that's out there And I suppose because uh, I haven't worked in hockey for a little bit, um, I probably look at it a lot differently now uh, than when I was playing. So, well, when I was younger, I didn't know, <laughs> didn't know anything. So looking back now, I wish that I knew what I know now back then. So I suppose it's it's more understanding... <clears throat> like linking uh, the feeling of what playing's like and I didn't play to any sort of standard so comparing what I played and Steve will lie and probably tell you he played to a good standard but the standard that he played uh, it doesn't it probably doesn't correlate with the standard that say if you're working KHL NHL or even say elite league in the in the UK the my experience if I were to be working in uh, in that environment wouldn't correlate it'd be more my experience from an snc coach and be able to critically analyze performance and uh, then work backwards to to figure out what's going to have the biggest biggest impact in the gym yeah <clears throat> thanks for that steve um to be honest <laughs> it doesn't even matter what curve i use on my stick i can't play hockey anyway so i don't think i made much of a of an impact with that um yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. Like my approach has changed over time. And one thing I kind of wanted to bring up in is this idea about how do you use um, testing alongside that? I've totally changed my approach on testing. Um, I, I, I had an article out a few years ago and it listed like so many things uh, about these are all the things that you should test when you're working with hockey players. And then I come to the KHL and it's like day one, let's go on the ice, full steam. I can't do any of those things that I wanted to get done. So um, my approach to testing has changed quite a lot over the years. Um, just interested to hear from you guys about kind of what you think uh, about testing and how that's changed. It's uh, it's funny to hear you say that, Steve, because when we uh, were first working in China, we had a lot of these debates about uh, like the the scientific versus the the practical. What's actually what are we actually able to do in practice? What's going to make the biggest impact when we do it in the real world versus what is, you know, maybe more academic or more scientifically rigorous um and so really funny to hear you kind of 
coming around on that curve and swinging a little bit more towards the 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 practical application side of things which i think is definitely where i've fallen on more often than not yeah do you know it's so funny i've uh, come upon this idea of like what i call the real world funnel right so imagine a funnel and you've got at the top like everything that's possible to do and then it all goes into this funnel and then out the bottom is what you're actually going to end up doing and i think there's a huge amount of factors that go into changing the size of that funnel what you can actually do you know how many staff you've got what pre-season time that you've got what equipment that you've got um you know for us this year i had all these ideas of going in and doing uh you know these great on ice you know uh assessments of anaerobic and aerobic fitness and then the coach is like no 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 on ice is for me you can do your stuff in the gym so really quickly you have to kind of change those my your mind and your mindset a lot as well and like you say there's what's ideal and then what's realistic and ultimately it's about what you can affect change with so one of the things that i did this year was uh, a six second watt bike power test i think that's pretty common in hockey but um it's really easy to measure and i can do that probably once uh once a month to sort of check uh, almost like uh as an evaluation of my training and how that's getting on so yeah definitely my uh my sh my sort of mind has shifted from just doing a bunch of tests at the start of the year to show off how much i know and collect all this data to okay what's usable and how can we use it um you know going forward what constraints are you under you know we're on the road for six months of the year so how are we able to test monitor however you want to call it and, and ultimately i fall into the idea of like really monitoring and testing if you're going across the season can can be a similar sort of thing so uh steve what do you think about this yeah i suppose i'm probably similar to you where it my kind of philosophy on diagnostics and monitoring is, have changed uh and kind of flip-flopped over the last five six years and uh where i'm at now is is kind of is quite context specific and builds into the what we spoke about earlier around uh relationships and environment and climate in that there might be some instances where it's not appropriate and you have to pick pick a couple of things that you're going to hang your hat on uh from a diagnostics perspective i suppose linking it back to the to the needs analysis if you've got a pretty robust needs analysis you can kind of streamline which uh, diagnostic tools you use <clears throat> in order to kind of measure what you feel is most important to performance. Um, I suppose where I kind of sit with diagnostics is it doesn't necessarily have to be a have to be a test that's that's done once every quarter or every third of the year. It could be something that's just inbuilt into into a training program. So if we're looking at, say, uh, peak power, and that's a critical determinant of performance, um, but we've got access to force plates or gym awares, we can track that during the seat or during uh, the course of a training program without having to specifically test for it. Similarly, there might be individual 
cases where you're looking at something specific with an athlete so then that one one athlete or player does a specific test and then uh, and uh, no one else does so I suppose for me it, it just varies quite a lot depending on the environment and the different athletes within it yeah I, I mean I guess we've kind of segued away a little bit but you're kind of making me think um and it's very much again about for me testing monitoring however you want to do it needs to be um not have not not taking over do you know what i mean like you don't want to waste everybody's time you don't want the athletes coming in every single day like oh we're doing another rsi test i just did this yesterday um I've been looking recently about, okay, I want to measure um, weight. I want to do that daily. I want to probably do it before and after practices so I can give some education about um, hydration and stuff like that. But at the same time, I don't want that to be a drain on the players. So um, I'm trying to look at, okay, what's the best method we can use? Is there some kind of Bluetooth scales that the guys can just hit a button, stand on and get off, get it done in two seconds? Um, you know, like I said, a, a six second watt bike power test once a month doesn't really impact too much on the general flow of your training over the season. Um, I'm not going to criticize anybody's approach of what they take, but I do hear coaches talking about how much testing they're doing. And I just think like, A, like, aren't your athletes just getting really, really bored and tired of this? And be like, where do you find the time to do your training? Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know, Simon, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's um, a lot of, like, a lot to be said for the data that you can get on a kind of day-to-day -day basis, like the simple data that you can get on a day-to-day -day basis to give you an idea of how your players are, well, how your you know, first off, the health and wellness of your players, how they're actually are that day, that session, um, how they're looking that week, but then also being able to track that over time and get a huge amount of information from that rather than having to book in all these multiple testing sessions that ultimately we have, you know, a lot of the time we don't necessarily have proof as such that that's going to improve their performance. You know, if you're doing a certain, a certain test does an increased score in that test actually make them a better hockey player it's really difficult to determine that whereas if you're tracking everything over time and you can see really positive trends in in the athlete i find that data sometimes to be a lot more valuable than just doing a combined style test no definitely and it it kind of links into the point the, or the question that I asked Steve earlier in that um, around uh, performance modeling and it's almost there's a lot of red herrings out there and uh, and we need to hang our hat on something that we can influence and uh, yeah we might not necessarily be able to prove that being able to skate faster has a direct impact on winning games but we know it's going to have it is going to have an impact which is what I really like about about Steve's Steve's approach to it, and it kind of links into a question in term in probably to both of you with the squads and athletes you've worked in, and do you kind of influence the way that 
your needs analysis or like when you look at determinants of performance are you influenced by the kind of style of play or or the coaching philosophy of the the head coach to to do that yeah absolutely i think that's a really fundamental thing it it actually goes back a little bit to our first topic about building buy-in and the relationships because um, it's no good if you're trying to work on one thing, but the head coach has a completely different plan, right? Whether that's a style of play that they're trying to implement or that's a something more technical. So, for example, with like, I've worked with some very technical sports like table tennis and, um, and figure skating. You know, with figure skating, if I'm looking at working on vertical uh, takeoff velocity, Right. That was one marker that we used a lot with with a couple of our female athletes. But that was aligned to what the coach wanted. He was saying specifically that the these two two female athletes needed to improve their single jumps. And that was from the literature. That was the key determinant of performance. And that was what I was able to take into the gym to specifically work on. But it was very much in line with the head coaches. Um, his vision of what was wrong with their with their performance as well yeah it's so important that communication isn't it i can give you an example of when it goes entirely wrong so working for speed skating so i work with short track as well in china um and when i first turned up to the team i had a kind of pre-briefing with the overall uh, like performance lead who had told me, hey, the team you're working with, the junior team, we want to get them ready um, up to 2022. We're not even, I was with them at 2017. They weren't even looking at the Olympics at 2018. They were looking at 2022. And they were like, we want you to really focus on their control, on their balance, on this and on the other. So I go in with a very um, kind of prehab, rehab, core programming um not really worrying um not that i'm not worrying about speed and power because obviously i am but they were smaller parts of the program however the junior team had a head coach and after two weeks pulls me to one side through a translator and says hey i'm really not happy with what you're doing like why aren't we doing you know power movements why are we doing strength movements what's going on and I sort of said, well, hang on, this is the the direction that I've been told from, you know, the performance lead. So getting that um, understanding off the bat is is really, really important. Um, otherwise, you can end up doing what I'm doing and wasting time and, and upsetting coaches and, and not really building towards what you need to be working on. No, and I think linking in yours and Simon's points in terms of uh, specifically testing and specifically trying to change stuff. Ultimately, we're all just trying to get our athletes better at their sport. And uh, like in Simon's example, in figure skating, uh, the outcome of strength training and improving jump height will have a direct influence on sport. But in, like, uh, like Steve was saying, in figure skating, we're not doing figure skating in the gym, so we're targeting specific neuromuscular qualities that are going to underpin, uh, in that case, speed skaters to skate faster. 
<clears throat> so I think in terms of like Simon's saying around diagnostics and getting and getting a, a way down with diagnostics, ultimately we're never going to be able to test the specific neuromuscular qualities that we're trying to change, say like sacomeres in parallel or sacomeres in series without doing something that we won't ever be able to do in elite athletes. So like ultrasound or muscle biopsies. So there's there's definitely a caveat to to trying to focus on uh, certain diagnostic tools which aren't necessarily measuring exactly what what you want to measure if that makes sense yeah absolutely does nice all right we're coming up towards the end so let's just move briefly on to topic number three um we kind of had a chat off air before this we didn't want this to overshadow or overpower um the talk today but you know it's middle of april we're in the middle of a kind of global pandemic and so we kind of really feel like there's a bit of a need to touch on um, not necessarily coronavirus as a virus but more about how it's impacting all of us um you know in the performance industry and how it's changing the way we're working uh i don't want to ask anybody to give away any secrets um obviously we're kind of all working with pretty high level athletes so let's just put that on to the on the shelf for a second and i want to take in a bit of a different direction so first of all there's been a huge um number of uh podcasts of zoom calls um kind of popping up around the world um i guess steven will come to you first um kind of have you got involved in any of these sort of things for self-improvement um either technically um or just kind of for your own interest how is sort of the i don't want to say extra time because it feels like we're doing more and more work now than ever before but what have you been doing um if anything to kind of work on self-improvement as i suppose everything that i've tried to do kind of links back to eva's personal development or something that uh trying to develop within the sports that I'm working with so it's kind of everything's linked back to to those those two things um I suppose this this opportunity well don't want to say opportunity but this time is given uh given me the ability to do stuff that kind of goes on the back burner the the type of things that you would try and squeeze in five minutes every day or or it, like the rest of your job takes precedent and they kind of get forgotten so I kind of tried to put those things at the forefront and um in terms of uh like those types of zoom calls I, I've found it a good opportunity not say like traveling to work for an hour a day half an hour there and back and things like that to get in touch with people that I either haven't spoken to in a while or I had specific questions that I knew that they could uh, they could provide insight to. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point about, you know, the rest of your job taking precedence and being able to find time for, for all the other things. Um, one great example of that is that we've managed to get this podcast back on track with um with our recordings after we we did the first one a little while ago um now that we've all got the the time to book this in um another one for me is that um 
I had a bit of an experience with this. One of the years in China, I was pretty much the only English-speaking person working at the Winter Sports Centre. So I got in a good routine of going for a walk after lunch and listening to a podcast and messaging guys from across um, who was spread across China. Um, so I kind of feel like I've reverted back to that that I did um, back then. Um, it's been an interesting time, obviously, in terms of reflection and reviewing what you're doing. Our center is currently closed, so you know I don't like Stephen. I don't necessarily want to call this an opportunity, but it is a great um, period of time that, if used wisely and well, can actually make us a lot better in the long run. Yeah, do you know it's interesting. I was. Uh talking to another podcast host earlier today um and it's interesting what you say about that because i've certainly used the time um to watch a couple of presentations online to listen to some podcasts and again like try and follow those up um with people actually listen to a podcast today emailed the guy he's emailed me straight back we're going to have a call it's great to sort of develop that relationship but interestingly um apparently podcast numbers like listening numbers have actually dropped because people aren't doing the commutes into work that they would normally be doing so um it's interesting oh I'm it, sure. it's carnage trying to get a podcast in with two kids running around <laughs> no chance yeah i i can imagine that like it could be so much harder um and and that actually is a brilliant point to lead on um there's i don't know like there's there's almost certainly like if you follow social media there's a bit of one-upmanship almost going on about these coaches and how much they've done and oh i've listened to 64 podcasts in the last 20 minutes and and i saw one guy go on and just be like to be honest i'm more worried about spending time with my wife spending time with my kids and trying to put food on my plate so yeah sorry i haven't had time to learn a new language um, and I think there's also those human elements that um, we could get caught up in worrying a little bit too much. Um, and, you know, maybe like Simon said, this is a great time for self-reflection, both on a professional aspect and probably from a personal aspect as well. Uh, so yeah, I, I was just going to say, sorry for talking over you there, Steve. Um, but yeah, the, it's very rare um, that people get afforded the chance of uh, like a mini career break, right? Like this is, that's usually you would have to take a sabbatical or, you know, maybe be between jobs and try to use that time. Um, whereas I feel like this gives us uh, a chance to, to do some of those things. Like you said, whether it's professionally looking at what you did in the last season what you've done over the last year and what you would change to make better or if it's you know personally thinking about your own education and really trying to target what you what you want to work on and develop and having the the time to to do that um yeah i find this a, a like I say could be seen as a, a bit of an opportunity although i don't necessarily want to use that term <laughs> yeah, that that was probably the wrong, or oh, it was definitely the wrong term. It's almost, I kind of get what Steve's saying, and when you 
you kind of com- compartmentalize it, if I can use my words properly, but you almost, when you're in a work mode to an extent, you kind of look at it as a, as a opportunity to be able to spend more time on doing different things. But then you also understand like when you leave that side of things, it's it's nice being at home all day with the kids and stuff like that. So, so there's that human element. It'll be interesting. It'd be great to hear both of your thoughts, whether you think it might change change the perception of people in the industry because obviously uh before this it it was about who can work the most uh who can work the hardest so do you think it it will uh that kind of perception will change um i want to say i hope it does from what i'm seeing on social media right now it's not going that way so I don't know, fingers crossed, I hope so. I'd really like it to. Um, it's a funny one for me because this is my off-season anyway. The The team have finished, so I'm kind of doing the normal things that I would be doing, PhD writing, listening to um, talks and stuff. But it definitely, right now, it seems that those coaches who are filming every single exercise and have, and have been to every single seminar, they're just replacing that and broadcasting uh, all over social media. So, um, like I said, hey, I'm never going to put anybody down for bettering themselves. I'm all for it, and I think it's wonderful. But uh, yeah, it would be it would be interesting. I think over the next few months to see how it changes. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think our industry is particularly bad for this idea of presenteeism where you have to be around showing your face. I certainly hope that this allows a bit more flexibility in the fact that, you know, you can be trusted that if you're not physically present, then perhaps you're, you know, you're doing your programming or your data analysis or something else. You can be doing that from home. You can be doing that from a coffee shop. You know, you can be doing that from from anywhere. So hopefully this will at least um, show people that, you know, it is possible that you don't necessarily have to be present to still be adding value to the program. No, definitely. And it, it might uh, link in nicely with uh, like a lot of coaches and myself included talk about athlete ownership and accountability and almost it provides provides the opportunity to to see whether those skills have been developed as well. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Some awesome points, guys. Right. We are bang on the one hour mark. So let's bring it to a close. Um, Stephen, are you happy for people to contact you? You're an interesting chap. I'm sure you've got more to talk about. Um, Are you kind of on social media, email? What have you got going on? Uh, Yeah, I've got uh, Twitter. I think it's uh, S. Breisner. and then uh, I use Instagram as well, but I don't really post anything on that. So Twitter's the best thing, uh, best thing to get me on. Nice, yeah. My uh, my Instagram is basically photos of uh, coffee and tattoos. So uh, I'm at snne83 Twitter and Instagram. Um, like I said, I don't post too much, but you can grab me on instant message, and I'll uh, I'll fire you a message back. Simon, what are yours? Um, I use Instagram the most, but again, it won't uh, bring you much enlightenment about sports science or performance. I'm um, 
Simon underscore J underscore Taylor.